Welcome to the Shakespeare Underground, a podcast series that explores the works and life of William Shakespeare. I'm Jennifer Newton, and this is episode seven, The Mysteries of the First Folio. The Shakespeare Underground is dedicated to exploring the fascinating and controversial arena of the Shakespeare authorship debate. In each episode, we look at a different aspect of why it is that people question whether William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon was actually the author of the works of Shakespeare. Why would you think otherwise? We're going to find out. In 1623, something momentous happened for Western culture. In late November of that year, a book rolled off the presses. The book was printed at the sign of the Half Eagle and Key in Barbican, London, by Isaac Jaggard and his blind father, William, and dedicated to the incomparable pair of brethren, two wealthy and powerful noblemen from a prominent literary family, William Herbert, Earl of Pembroke, and Philip Herbert, Earl of Montgomery. The book, of course, is the first folio, and the most important thing about it, of course, is that it brought us the dramas of Shakespeare. Many of Shakespeare's best-loved plays had never been in print before this, and even of those that had, there was no guarantee that those cheaper quarto editions would have made it through the centuries. First folios are among the most expensive and prized books in the world. Copies are treasured for their age and rarity, and for their close association to Shakespeare himself. Since 400 years of literary sleuthing has turned up no manuscripts, letters, or books he owned, this posthumous collection of his plays almost takes on the status of a holy relic. Not only can you draw near to Shakespeare's earliest readers and admirers, but since they were printed just seven years after his death, the pages may have been touched by someone who knew the man himself. We know a lot about the book. Early purchasers include three earls, two bishops, an admiral, two colonels, a Spanish ambassador, a knight, and a lawyer. And we know who to thank for the book. It was put together by two actor friends from Shakespeare's company. Or was it? There are curiosities about the book and its production that make some scholars wonder if the first folio has another secret history. Catherine Children joins us today to investigate. Catherine Children is the author of Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works. A graduate of UCLA and an independent scholar, she's studied the Shakespeare authorship question for more than 26 years and has debated the topic with English professors at the Smithsonian Institution and the Mechanics Institute Library in San Francisco. In April 2012, Children received an award for Distinguished Scholarship at Concordia University in Portland, Oregon, for her work on Shakespeare Suppressed. She's also published two anthologies, Dedication Letters to the Earl of Oxford and Letters and Poems of Edward, Earl of Oxford. Children's given talks on the Shakespeare authorship question and discussed it on radio and TV. She's a former trustee of the Shakespeare Oxford Society. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Well, your book, Shakespeare Suppressed, is a wide-ranging look at historical records that you say prove the works of Shakespeare have been attributed to the wrong person. What even led you to look into this? You know, at school, we all learned that William Shakespeare from Stratford-upon-Avon was the great author. So what piece of information did you come across that made you think otherwise? Well, before I knew anything about Shakespeare, I had seen a list of the plays with composition dates next to them. And I was puzzled to see that all these question marks were next to each composition date. And I thought to myself, after 400 years, they still don't know when Hamlet was written. And so that piqued my interest. But years later, when I got deeper into the authorship question, I learned that the Stratford man's case was so weak and that especially that no evidence during his lifetime proves that he was the great author of Shakespeare, that his case is completely posthumous. Well, today you're going to be discussing the origins of a very important book. The official title is Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies, and it's much more commonly known as the First Folio. Will you tell us what exactly is the First Folio? Well, the first folio, it's a collection of 36 Shakespeare plays, and it was the very first collection in print. The book has a very large page size, which is 
called a folio size. So that's why they call it the folio. And they call it the first folio because it was the first one of four editions. So the first folio came out in 1623, and the second one came out in 1632, and so on, up until the fourth folio. The first folio has a powerful mystique. When one even comes up for sale, it's all over the news. It's guaranteed to bring in millions of dollars at auction. Why is this book so sought after? What makes it so especially significant? It is highly prized to own a folio. I would say it's because when it came out, it was probably the greatest literary event in history. It contained 36 plays, but of these 36 plays, 20 20 had never before been in print. Plays like The Tempest, Julius Caesar, and Macbeth. If the book hadn't come out, those plays would have been lost forever. And it was also the very first image of Shakespeare in print that no one had ever seen before. The first folio is the reason why there is a Shakespeare authorship question. It was the very first time that Shakespeare became associated with Stratford-on-Avon. And most people are unaware of this and that there is zero evidence that the Stratford man was Shakespeare during his lifetime. Also, I think the interest in Shakespeare just keeps growing and growing. All around the world it is. He really is at the center of Western civilization. So it's very, very important on many levels. So the first folio came out in 1623, seven years after William Shakespeare died. Was this a pretty typical happening at that time? After a famous author died, someone would gather up their works and publish them in a folio? Well, there were collected editions for writers that was popular while they were alive and after they died. But for the works to be in folio with the large page size, that was more unusual because they were typically reserved for important reference books like for the law or for religious works or the Bible. Really, it was Ben Jonson who was the first dramatist to have his works printed in that folio page size in, in 1616, which was about seven years before the folio. And in 1616, Ben Jonson was alive, so he collected his own works and put them out? Right. Was there any evidence that Shakespeare was working on his own collection when he died? Not as far as we know. No evidence that he planned to do so. Certainly it was not in his will. He didn't talk about it. Even though at the time there were 20 Shakespeare plays that still had not been published. The folio also said that Shakespeare didn't get a chance to be the executor to his own writings merely because he died. And yet the professor will tell you that Shakespeare, about three years before his death, he was living in semi-retirement in Stratford-on-Avon. So it seems to me there should have been time. Well, switching gears a little, nowadays, if you wanted to buy a first folio, you would have to come up with something along the lines of $20 million. Was a folio expensive to purchase back in the day? Yes, it was. It was very expensive. It sold for about one pound, which today's equivalent, I understand, would be over $200. But that's just like putting contemporary values to values back then. But if you make a comparison as to how affordable it was based on your work, for example, uh, your salary, it would have been more like $3,000 to purchase in today's money. A $3,000 book. So this was really not an everyman purchase. No. Did it sell well at the time? Yes, they think so, because within nine years, they had to reprint it. And the only other example that was similar was Johnson's folio, and that took 24 years to get reprinted. So presumably, it was a bestseller. How many were printed? Well, scholars don't know exactly how many, but they figure that they printed between 750 and 1,000. But it's interesting that over 200 have survived. It's a high number. Oh, that's amazing, actually. Yeah. So the first folio is a briskly selling $3,000 first collection of Shakespeare's dramas that introduced 20 new plays to print, plays that probably would have been lost to us otherwise. And so Shakespeare seems not to have been involved in the production. Where did the folio come from? Well, the traditional story is really based on what was mentioned in the folio preface, which was the first 16 pages. And it was basically J. 
Shakespeare's acting friends, they were named John Hemmings and Henry Condell, that they were the ones responsible for the book and that they did it primarily as a favor to their friend because he died before he had the chance to do that. In fact, they even used the term that the plays were orphans. But going beyond that, it's a little bit fuzzy because we don't have any records about the folio's production, and we don't even have the manuscripts that they used for the production either. So we really just have the final product. We just have this book. Right. That's all we've got is whatever they, they say. Then what the folio tells us is that his friends stepped up after his death and published his plays as a favor to William himself, and I guess as kind of a favor to the plays, these orphans. John Hemmings and Henry Condell are familiar names. They were members of his acting company, right? Yes. So that would explain why they had the plays. This all seems pretty straightforward. There are some problems with that story. For example, there were oddities about the folio preface. You look at the very first page, the title page, it says Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedies published according to the true original copies. Now, that is an outright lie. Some of the plays that they used in the folios were actually some of the pirated editions of the plays. Today, we call those editions the bad quartos. And these bad quartos are showing up in the first folio. Yes. So how could that be the true original copy? And also, the text is filled with errors everywhere. It's unlikely that the author's true original will be filled with errors. But that's just the beginning. It seems really odd that bad quartos are showing up in this ultimate collector's edition of Shakespeare. And you say that they're known to be pirated versions. Can you tell a little more about that? Like, how do we know a pirated play from an original? Yeah, well, you have many, many lines are missing. Some lines are presented in verse when they should be presented in regular dialogue and vice versa. Sometimes you have paraphrasing of lines, things like that, which are obviously probably heard by a transcriber. A transcriber was probably in the audience taking notes and mishearing some lines. And would that have been like a theatrical spy, someone from a rival company who maybe wanted to put on their own production of a play like Hamlet? Yeah, well, it could be for a rival company or it could be just for printers who wanted the text because it seems that the author himself was not amenable to getting the plays printed. But hadn't almost half the plays in the folio already been published? Well, their condition argues that the author was not cooperative because they are all in some way, shape, or form imperfect. And if the author was willingly getting them printed, he would give them a perfect version. There's no need to give an imperfect version. So this isn't just an issue with the first folio. It seems like Shakespeare was not into having his plays published. Right. But at the same time, he didn't pursue legal action against anyone who did publish them. It's almost like he's just kind of detached from the whole thing. Right. Well, I'm eager to hear about these oddities you mentioned. So let's open up the first folio and look inside. And for those of you who want to follow along visually, there is a link to a digitized folio on the website at theshakespeareunderground.com. So Catherine, we open the cover and here is a picture. This famous portrait of Shakespeare that we all know so well from tote bags and coffee mugs. What can you tell us about this picture? The folio's portrait engraving was very unusual for several reasons. First of all, it was huge. It took up over half of the title page. And as far as I know, that is unprecedented. Usually, portraits were placed opposite to the title page. In this case, it was right in there and even taking up most of it. The very first page, you instantly see the, the image of Shakespeare, right? But the left of that, you have a poem written by Ben Johnson telling the reader basically to ignore that image. So it makes you wonder why. why? I mean, why even put the image? Really? So you think Ben Johnson is telling the reader to ignore the picture? Let's listen to that poem. To the reader, this figure that thou here seest put, it was for gentle Shakespeare cut, wherein the graver had a strife with nature to outdo the life. Oh, could he but have drawn his wits as well in brass as he hath? 
hit his face. The print would then surpass all that was ever writ in brass. But since he cannot, reader, look not on his picture, but his book. Stanley Wells, the noted Shakespeare expert, and others have said that Johnson here is praising the portrait. I wouldn't say it's praising it. I think basically it's, it comes down to the last phrase where he says, reader, look not on his picture, but his book. And what about that line, oh, if he could have drawn his wits as well as he has hit his face? I've heard it said that hit could be construed as the past tense of hide. So he could be saying that he has hid his face. Yes. Well, true to form, Ben Johnson was very ambiguous in a lot of the language in the folio. Also, it was a little unusual because celebrated writers like Shakespeare, they were usually portrayed wearing laurel leaves in their hair, which was a sign of poetic victory. But we don't have that. And yet, during his lifetime, Shakespeare was acknowledged as great. And even Johnson himself in his elegy in the folio called him the soul of the age. So that was curious. Another unflattering aspect of the Rochat engraving is that that forehead. It's totally oversized. It's not natural at all. And the head is out of proportion with the rest of the body. Also, if you look closely, there is a second line coming out from the ear, which is not anatomically correct. And, you know, over the years, its portrait has been greatly criticized for being even grotesque. Yes, there's been a rich tradition of outrage at this portrait. I just want to read a couple of my favorite quotes here. This is from 1908. The writer Arthur Benson describes the bilious, dilapidated, dyspeptic white face of the folio engraving with the horrible hydrocephalus development of the skull. And then biographer Samuel Schoenbaum laments that Droshout's deficiencies are, alas, only too gross. The huge head on the plate of ruff surmounts a disproportionately small tunic. One eye is lower and larger than the other. The hair does not balance at the sides. Light comes from several directions. And then here's one from George Greenwood, a lawyer, member of parliament, and also Shakespeare authorship skeptic. He has reams to say on this topic, so this is just one choice quote from him. Not only is the head preternaturally large for the body, not only is it quaintly suggestive of an unduly deferred razor, but it looks at one with a peculiar expression of sheepish oafishness, which is irresistibly comic. We'll have more of these on the website with kind of an interactive look at the portrait and some of the problems that have been identified with it that have caused these kind of remarks to be made. So who is responsible for this? The artist is said to be Martin Droshout. Who is this guy and why was he picked to do this most significant portrait? Yeah, it's interesting. He primarily, through his whole life, did portrait engravings. But it appears that the folio was one of his first or earliest commissions. And when you look at a couple other commissions that he did in 1623, which is the year the folio came out, you have these much more lifelike versions, anatomically correct, everything, which you know, calls into question why Shakespeare is just so strange or poorly rendered. Another curiosity about this image is that it doesn't match the image of the effigy in the monument in Stratford-upon-Avon in the church, which is supposed to be of William Shakespeare. How do they differ? Well, for example, Shakespeare has in the Rochat engraving kind of a grizzled, thin mustache, but in the effigy he has a short, upturned mustache and a goatee. That's just one difference. But the hair is different, the forehead is different, there's a lot of differences. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why for many years, many decades, people have wanted to exhume the body of, you know, the Shakespeare in, in Avon just to see what, what he really did look like. Did it, did it resemble his effigy or did it resemble a folio image? Oh my gosh. Well, I guess that's not too surprising given the excitement over all these portraits of Shakespeare that keep turning up and keep turning out not to be of Shakespeare. There's a real hunger to look on his face. I know. 
Oh, it's very tempting, but of course they, they won't allow that. Well, sounds like the portrait is its own mystery. It's not anatomically correct. It's not even lifelike. It ought to have laurel leaves, the sign of a great poet. It's too large on the page. And in fact, it's on the wrong page. You're saying that typically these are on the facing, not the title page. What can we compare this to, to get a sense of whether it's off? What are some more typical portraits of writers of the day? Well, a good one would be of Michael Drayton, who was a poet and also was believed he was a dramatist, although we don't have any of the surviving plays. But if you look at his uh, 1620 edition of poems by Michael Drayton, he's shown with bay leaves in his hair. Johnson also has an engraving of himself that was rendered circa 1622, just before the folio, with bay leaves also in his hair. And also, a little bit later, there's Philip Massinger. He was a dramatist, and also Richard Broom, who was a dramatist. They were both depicted in books with a circle of bay leaves right above their head, not on their hair. And that was in the 1650s. We'll get links to some of those up on the website so you can take a look. For now, though, let's go and take Ben Johnson's advice and look not on his picture, but on his book. There is a letter in the first folio that is actually written directly to us, to the great variety of readers. And this is from Shakespeare's actor friends, John Hemmings and Henry Condell. They appear in Shakespeare's will. It's a little bit of an afterthought. It's an interlineation, but he gives them money to buy memorial rings. And in this letter, they are introducing the first folio and telling the story of how it came to be. To the great variety of readers, from the most able to him that can but spell. There, you are numbered. We had rather you were weighed. <laughs> Especially when the fate of all books depends upon your capacities. And not of your heads alone, but of your purses. Well? It is now public, and you will stand for your privileges, we know, to read and censure. Do so but buy it first. That doth best commend a book, the stationer says. Then, how soever your brains be, or your wisdoms, make your license the same, and spare not. Judge your sixpenworth, your shillings worth, your five shillings worth at a time, or higher, so you rise to the just rates, and welcome. But whatever you do, buy. Censure will not drive a trade or make the jack go. And though you be a magistrate of wit and sit on the stage at Blackfriars or the cockpit to arraign plays daily, no, these plays have had their trial already and stood out all appeals and do now come forth quitted rather by a decree of court than any purchased letters of commendation. It had been a thing, we confess, worthy to have been wished that the author himself had lived to have set forth and overseen his own writings. But since it hath been ordained otherwise, and he by death departed from that right, we pray you do not envy his friends the office of their care and pain to have collected and published them. And so to have published them, as where before, you were abused with diverse stolen and surreptitious copies maimed and deformed by the frauds and stealths of injurious impostors that expose them. Even those are now offered to your view, cured and perfect of their limbs, and all the rest absolute in their numbers as he conceived them who, as he was a happy imitator of nature, was a most gentle expressor of it. His mind and hand went together, and what he thought he uttered with that easiness that we have scarce received from him a blot in his papers. But it is not our province who only gather his works and give them you to praise him. It is yours that read him. And there we hope, to your diverse capacities, you will find enough both to draw and hold you. For his wit can no more lie hid than it could be lost. Read him, therefore, and again and again, 
and if then you do not like him, surely you are in some manifest danger not to understand him. <laughs> and so we leave you to other of his friends, whom, if you need, can be your guides. If you need them not, you can lead yourselves and others. And such readers we wish him. Henry Condell. John Hemming. I'm feeling a little pressure here to buy this book. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, it's really an embarrassment. The first paragraph, um, it's a joke. They're urging the readers to buy the book like they're desperate to get their money back. And that by itself insults the work, you know, instead of promoting it. And I have not come across any such urging the reader to this extent anywhere. So that's not a normal feature of a letter like this. I've never come across anything like this. Another unusual thing was that the Hemings and Condell were commenting on Shakespeare's writing style, and like the words flowed so easily, like he was a natural genius. And then you have Johnson in his elegy kind of contradicting that by saying, he worked hard, he sweated hard, like a blacksmith at the anvil, trying to craft these lines. So you have a contradiction right away. And I would say that another thing that was an exaggeration was that they said in that letter that the text was perfect. And that was totally untrue. But it was true that the previous editions of the plays were, as they would say, stolen, surreptitious, maimed, and deformed. That for sure was the case. Hemings and Condell have a second letter in the folio. This is to the dedicatees, the Earl of Pembroke and the Earl of Montgomery. Let's listen to that, and then I'd love to hear your take on it. To the most noble and incomparable pair of brethren, William, Earl of Pembroke, etc., Lord Chamberlain to the King's Most Excellent Majesty, and Philip, Earl of Montgomery, etc., Gentlemen of His Majesty's Bedchamber, both knights of the most noble order of the Garter and our singular good lords. Right Honourable, whilst we study to be thankful in our particular for the many favours we have received from your lordships, we are fallen upon the ill fortune to mingle two the most diverse things that can be, fear and rashness. Rashness in the enterprise and fear of the success. For when we value the places your honors sustain, we cannot but know their dignity greater than to descend to the reading of these trifles. And while we name them trifles, we have deprived ourselves of the defense of our dedication. But since your lordships have been pleased to think these trifles something heretofore, and have prosecuted both them and their author living with so much favor, we hope that they outliving him and he not having the fate common with some to be executor to his own writings, you will use the like indulgence toward them you have done unto their parent. There is a great difference whether any book choose his patrons or find them. This hath done both. For so much were your lordship's likings of the several parts, when they were acted, as before they were published, the volume asked to be yours. We have but collected them, and done an office to the dead, to procure his orphans' guardians without ambition either of self-profit or fame, only to keep the memory of so worthy a friend and fellow alive as was our Shakespeare. By humble offer of his plays to your most noble patronage. Wherein, as we have justly observed, no man to come near your lordships but with a kind of religious address. It hath been the height of our care, who are the presenters, to make the present worthy of your honours by the perfection. But there we must also crave our abilities to be considered, my lords. We cannot go beyond our own powers. Country hands reach forth milk, cream, fruits, or what they have. And many nations, we have heard, that had not gums and incense obtained their requests with a leavened cake. 
It was no fault to approach their gods by what means they could, and the most, though meanest of things, are made more precious when they are dedicated to temples. In that name, therefore, we most humbly consecrate to your honors these remains of your servant, Shakespeare, that what delight is in them may be ever your lordship's, the reputation his, and the faults ours, if any be committed, by a pair so careful to show their gratitude both to the living and... And the dead, as is your lordship's most bounden, Henry Condal. John Hemming. The class difference comes across loud and clear. Right. What else should we notice here? Well, there's a few oddities. Both of these actors, they were presented as very stupid. Like, for example, they called the plays trifles, which no one would say that the Shakespeare play was a trifle. And also they said that Pembroke and Montgomery would have to descend to read them. That was also, to me, I think very odd. In their extreme deference to the Earls, they're almost dragging the plays down. Exactly. That's a good phrase, yeah, dragging them down. Also, the statement that Shakespeare was the servant of Pembroke and Montgomery and that they favored him, there's absolutely no evidence that that was the case. But there's more interesting evidence. It's more than likely that they didn't even write these letters. In fact, it's been accepted for over 200 years that Ben Jonson actually composed them. Ben Jonson wrote the letters of Hemings and Condal. Yeah, I think it was Edmund Malone, the 18th century, that saw the parallels between some of Johnson's writings and these letters. And these letters, for example, they borrow lines from the classical writers Horace and Pliny. And we know that Hemings and Condal were not the classical scholars, but we do know that Ben Johnson was. Oh, that's really strange because the tone of the letters is so conversational. They definitely don't give off the sense that someone sat down with their big book of classics to borrow some high-minded language or throw in some literary allusions. All right, you would think that, but there's been a lot of analysis that proves otherwise. And also there's little snippets in that letter and the other letter of phrases that Johnson actually had coined from Johnson's own works, works that were already published or not yet published which also supports the idea that he was behind these letters. I give quite a few examples in my book showing all the parallels between Johnson's phrases in other works and phrases in the first folio. And also, there seem to be some phrases taken from Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, and even from Thomas Haywood. Wow, so Ben Johnson wrote these, and they're a literary goldmine. Now, did Hemings and Condal commission him to write them? Well, you know, I don't think that they asked him to write their letters because they were so unflattering. I mean, they are really depicted as ignorant cretins, people who are afraid that they're not going to get their money back and they're not shy to tell you so. They want the readers to buy the book, buy, buy, buy the book. I don't think that's a very flattering image. It's really more of a joke. If they were so concerned about getting their money back, why didn't they include their proven bestsellers of Shakespeare, which was his great poems, Venus and Adonis, and The Rape of Lucrece. Why not? I mean, Johnson had poems in his folio. He had poems and dramas. Shakespeare was more famous, really, as a poet during his lifetime, more than a playwright. And both of those poems went through many, many editions during his lifetime. It seems to me if they were concerned about getting their money back, they would have included that in there. Interesting. So the first folio is plays only, no poetry. Right. Well, it seems very curious that Johnson wrote the letters, possibly not at the behest of Hemings and Condal. And we'll have to get back to that and what it all means. But meantime, let's take a look at something else that Johnson wrote for the first folio that he did put his own name on. Can you tell us about this beautiful elegy where he calls Shakespeare soul of the age? Johnson's elegy to Shakespeare is an amazing tribute to the great author. Johnson greatly lauds Shakespeare. He says that Shakespeare was greater than his contemporaries and also that he was greater than the ancients, which was an unbelievable compliment. He was better than Aristophanes, Terence, Plautus. And an interesting point he brings up, which is very controversial, 
which is that Shakespeare had little Latin and less Greek. Now, this is what the Shakespeare professor would tell you, taking it literally, that Johnson was saying that Shakespeare had little Latin and less Greek, and also that he had little education. But we know that that's not true because Shakespeare had an extensive knowledge of Greek and Latin language and literature. He referred to works that were not even translated yet. So that was a strange ambiguity. But I think that the professor takes him at his word because it would help support the Stratford man's case. Because for what they would tell you, the Stratford man only attended the grammar school maybe to age 13. I mean, they don't even know, even that point. And another interesting contradiction that Johnson does with Hemings and Condell, Hemings and Condell say that Shakespeare never blotted a line meaning the words just flowed easily and perfectly, that he didn't have any struggle. And yet, in Johnson's elegy, he says the direct opposite, that Shakespeare had to sweat hard to come up with perfect writing, that he had to constantly revise and revise, which really is more true to form for writers. But Hemming and Condell would have you believe that he was like a, a medium, that the works were just flowing out of his pen like automatic writing. Wow, for as much as it's appealing to think of Shakespeare as this perfect genius, that is an uncomfortable image. Yeah. Well, we have a portion of Ben Johnson's prefatory poem that includes some of those lines you looked at. So let's listen to that. Triumph, my Britain, thou hast one to show to whom all scenes of Europe homage owe. He was not of an age, but for all time. And all the muses still were in their prime, when, like Apollo, he came forth to warm our ears, or like a Mercury to charm. Nature herself was proud of his designs, and joyed to wear the dressing of his lines, which were so richly spun, and woven so fit, as since she will vouchsafe no other wit. The merry Greek, tart Aristophanes, Meet Terence, witty Plautus, now not please, but antiquated and deserted lie, as they were not of nature's family. Yet must I not give nature all. Thy art, my gentle Shakespeare, must enjoy a part. For though the poet's matter nature be, his art doth give the fashion, and that he who casts to write a living line must sweat such as thine are, and strike the second heat upon the muse's anvil. Turn the same and himself with it that he thinks to frame, or for the laurel he may gain a scorn, for a good poet's made as well as born. Yes, he's clearly saying that Shakespeare worked at writing. So Ben Johnson wrote this poem under his own name and wrote the letters of Hemings and Condal, and yet these contradict each other in places. We've seen some other mixed messages in the folio, too. Like, here's a picture. Don't look at it. Why this ambiguity? What is the intended effect of all this? I think that the folio preface was geared to two different audiences, the knowing and the unknowing. And I would define the knowing audience were those who knew the Stratford man and who knew the great author. They knew that he was a nobleman using a pen name. They couldn't directly say that the Stratford man was a great author because both of these parties knew that he wasn't. So that's why I don't think that the portrait by Droshout was an exact image of the Stratford man. I think it was intended to show a gentleman, which the Stratford man was, but also to show that he was a freak of nature. And I know that's a weird concept. But if you look again at the big head and the almost grotesque face, you'll see kind of a gentleman monster. A gentleman monster? Yes. And I think that by showing that he was perhaps this gentleman monster, it was a, it was a way of explaining how a completely uneducated person could reach the pinnacle of literary greatness, that he was a genius freak, that it was all natural, that it was not acquired. Honestly, this sounds a little weird to me. No, actually, this concept I didn't make up. I got it from Ben Johnson himself in his play, Every Man and His Humor. One of his characters was called Master Stephen, and he was described as a country gull. 
gull meaning like a stupid person. Like gullible. Gullible, yes, which in a way describes the Stratford man because he was basically an uneducated person from the country. And this character, Master Stephen, also was very keen on being a gentleman or being perceived as a gentleman. This character tried to pretend that he was a poet. So you take all those together, and it could have been a parody of The Strapper Man, in my opinion. Uh, I think a lot of people would disagree with you there. I know, I know. But when you look at an excerpt from the play, which were lines that were said to this Master Stephen, you might see what I mean. The quote is, let the idea of what you are be portrayed in your face that men may read into your physiognomy. Here within this place is to be seen the true, rare, and accomplished monster or miracle of nature, which is all one. Not so sure about accomplished monster, but miracle of nature is very familiar language in terms of how Shakespeare has often been described. Right. Now, the interesting point about this is that Johnson added these lines to a later version of the play, which was printed in 1616. And what's the date on the earlier version? The earliest version came out in, I believe, 1598. It was when it was played. So between the 1590s and 1616, Ben Johnson was inspired to add those lines. And this wouldn't actually be Johnson's only parody of Shakespeare. There's that character Sogliardo, who's widely considered a lampoon of William from Stratford. Sogliardo struggles like Shakespeare did to get his coat of arms. And the motto he ends up with is an obvious lampoon of Shakespeare's motto. It's not without mustard compared to Shakespeare's not without right. So there's some kind of in-joke there. Basically, Johnson's been known to parody Shakespearean characters, so your suggestion here is not so off the mark as it might seem. What else do you want to point out about the prefatory pages in the first folio? Well, we should have had a little bit more information about Shakespeare. There's so little known about William Shakespeare during his lifetime that this was the place that we would have expected to find more. And yet, there's no biographical material at all. All they basically give is that he was dead. But they don't say when he died. They don't say where he died. There's no mention that he was a member of the Lord Chamberlain's men or the King's men. Those were two acting companies that he was known to be associated with. And that's odd, too, because there is evidence of other writers who are also actors who mention their affiliation with acting companies. The only real hint that we get as far as his biography goes is the word Avon, which Johnson mentioned in his elegy to Shakespeare, the sweet swan of Avon. That was on one page. And then on another page, we have Stratford Monument. And that was in the poem of Leonard Diggs. So you presumably think therefore, that Shakespeare came from Stratford-upon-Avon, but that phrase is not at all given. So that's it. Stratford in one poem and Avon in another. Exactly. There was no mention of Stratford or Avon in connection with Shakespeare before this book came out. Now, here's the thing. You have 16 pages of the preface, right? But five of them are blank. They have plenty of room to put more information and why didn't they put the Stratford man's coat of arms? Wait, oh, he vigorously, or his father vigorously tried to get one. Certainly it was important. Why did that not get featured in the folio? No coat of arms, no biographical sketch. All that we have about the person William Shakespeare is a problematic picture, some ambivalent verses, the words Stratford in one poem, Avon in another. And then these forged letters from his friends, with the letters not being written by Hemings and Condal, and with the letters not making them seem particularly dignified or informed, it suggests that they weren't totally in charge of this. Do you think that their role was limited to just gathering and editing the plays? I think it's very possible that they did gather the plays, but I don't think that they edited the material. The editing aspect is a very important point, and it's 
one that is not often brought up by Shakespeare scholars. What's certain is that the plays are the products of an extremely literate and educated person. So it would take at least a very educated person to be able to edit these works for publication. And that would immediately dismiss Hemings and Condell. As far as we know, they were not highly educated. Earlier, though, you said that the texts were filled with errors. You still think, though, that there is a strong and competent editor at work? Well, you know, Shakespeare invents quite a few words and a lot of phrases. And his vocabulary was so enormous. How could you properly prepare these works for print unless you knew exactly what the word is that he's trying to convey? So you did have to be an educated person. And Shakespeare borrowed from other languages as well. Right. There was French language, for sure. Certainly you had to have a well-rounded education to be able to edit the works. And as you know, as I mentioned, 20 of the plays had never been in print before, so they were in some sort of raw form. You had to know what was going on to print it credibly. The errors that I mentioned were mostly typos, more in proofreading. The content pretty cohesive. That does seem like a really significant undertaking for two working actors. 36 Shakespeare plays to go through. How many pages is that? There were 907 pages. And that's why it leads one to the conclusion that the presence of the other people who contributed to the folio, these poems that laud Shakespeare, Hugh Holland, James Mab, and Leonard Diggs, that they were highly educated men, and more than likely they were the ones chosen to edit these works. Otherwise, there would be no reason to include them because none of those three were involved with the theater. They're at best only minor poets. They were not poets by trade. That's something I've always wondered is why these guys, you know, where's George Chapman? Where's John Donne? Or where's John Fletcher, who's thought to have collaborated with Shakespeare? Yeah, or John Martin. Like, for example, in 1601, Shakespeare... Marston, Chapman, and Johnson all contributed poems to this publication and it seemed to me that they were buddies, certainly peers who knew each other. Well, why didn't they contribute poems? Then Mab, Diggs, and Holland wrote the poems for the first folio instead of these more obvious poets because they were the editors? I think that maybe it was their privilege to be included like that, their privilege for being the editors, to have your name appear in the complete collection of the Shakespeare plays. I think that was a great honor, because your name is going to live as long as his. I also think that Johnson may have helped edit the works. There's one point I came across where one scholar sees the cast list seem to have descriptions that sound like Johnson, but he may have added those descriptions. And also, I think Edward Blunt had something to do with the editing, too, because he actually registered, along with Isaac Jaggard, he registered those hitherto unpublished plays. So I think he had a lot to do with it as well. About those unpublished plays, you said that there were 20 in the folio? Yes. Where did those come from? Were some of them performed but just not published, or were some of them completely new plays to the world? A few of them were new. If I'm not mistaken, Julius Caesar was not known to have been performed publicly. It is a mystery as to where those 20 unpublished plays came from. You'd think that a theater company or printer who owned anything new by Shakespeare would be making good use of it. Right. Did the new plays perhaps come from Stratford? Do we know if the folio makers got in touch with Anne Hathaway or Shakespeare's daughters to see what they might have? Yeah, you you would think that they would do that, wouldn't you? But there's no sign of it at all. There's no mention of Shakespeare's family in the first folio preface. And, of course, there's no mention of unpublished play manuscripts in the Stratford man's will. Besides there being no mention of any book in his will. That's right. And if you haven't listened yet, you should check out our podcast all about Shakespeare's will, which is episode number one. So it's looking like Shakespeare's family had no involvement whatsoever in the folio. And it also looks like they never even owned a copy. There are folio hunters who specialize in finding out who has possessed a copy, and nothing has ever been traced back to that family. Well, you've been talking about the editing of the plays. 
and how that would have been beyond the capacity of Shakespeare's actor friends John Hemmings and Henry Condell. Hemmings and Condell keep kind of getting demoted here. What do you think their role was? Did they just put in the money? In fact, how is the folio thought to have been funded? We don't have any records, but there are some clues. And you can start by looking at the preface with Hemmings and Condell, where they're urging the readers to buy the book, presumably so they'll get their money back. That implies that they funded it. Yet, if you look at the very back page of the folio, like page 907 or whatever, it says, printed at the charges of Jaggard, Blunt, Smethick, and Aspley. As far as Hemming and Condell go, there's no specific evidence that they had shares. No shares were mentioned in their wills or transferred to anyone. But as far as the other four, they were definitely involved. Jaggard and Blunt later transferred their folio shares to other people. So that's definitely on the record. And Smethick and Aspley were involved in the second folio in 1632. So I think those four really confirmed that they had some shares in the folio. But the real question is, did they put up the money for it? And it was a very big amount, even for a group of investors. You have to really look at how much it cost, and it was extremely costly. It was over 900 pages. It had better quality paper, and there were the editors right, that we were mentioning, and there were compositors, and those were people who set the type. And, of course, there was the portrait, so there were many, many expenses involved. Scholars will say it cost approximately 250 pounds, but I think that's a bit low. And a conservative estimate that I came up to would have been around 350 pounds, which back then was an enormous amount of money, even for if it was separated between five people. So you think it was a 350-pound outlay to get this printed? And I know you translated one pound for us as $3,000 in modern buying power. Right. Well, I mean, it's probably going to be here a million. You know, it was very, very costly. It comes out to about nine shillings per book. And the maximum that they could have charged a bookseller would have been 10 shillings a book. So that's a very small profit margin for a very big risk. Now, another interesting contradiction that argues against them putting up money is why did Smedic publish Romeo and Juliet on his own as a quarto in 1623 when the folio was almost ready to be released? Wait, so one of these investors published a separate edition of Romeo and Juliet right in the same year? Yeah, right. So therefore he's competing with himself. So that doesn't, to me, make sense in a financial way. So the number of likely investors is getting a bit smaller. Hemmings and Condal didn't pass on any shares, so it doesn't seem like they were in on the funding side. And Smavik is now out of the picture. Uh, He was trying to make a quick buck off of his Romeo and Juliet on the side. Are we left with the Jaggards, Edward Blunt, and then maybe Aspley to make this 350-pound investment? Exactly. And for such a very risky and small return. So it therefore it becomes a bit unlikely that that really was the case of the funding. I think that these four got their shares by bringing in Shakespeare play texts. We know that Blunt and Jaggard registered 16 new Shakespeare plays for the folio in the stationery register. And also Smethick and Astley, their editions of Romeo and Juliet Love's Labor's Lost and Much Do About Nothing were definitely the ones used for the folio. So you think that the shares may have been payment for the right to use these plays that the people on the list held the copyrights for? Exactly. So what about the $1 million cash investment to actually produce the books? To me, the evidence points to Pembroke and Montgomery, the two people that the book was dedicated to. And those are the lords that Hemmings and Condal were addressing in that second letter. Right. Why would you think they would be involved in the funding? Well, books were dedicated back then to people who were likely to fund it. And the Earl of Pembroke would have been in a position to finance the production of the first folio without really worrying about getting his money back? 
Oh, yes. The Earl of Pembroke and Montgomery, they were extremely rich and powerful men and sponsored many, many works. In fact, Pembroke sponsored over 100 works, and he had a huge interest in literature. He himself was a poet, and his uncle was the celebrated poet, Sir Philip Sidney. Also, his father sponsored an acting company that played Shakespeare's plays. So the Earl of Pembroke was a literary patron with demonstrated ties to the Shakespeare plays. What, though, besides just the dedication, would suggest he had anything to do with the production of the first folio? Well, yeah, you know, Pembroke was very, very keen on giving the office of the Lord Chamberlain, which controlled theater production and play printing, among other duties. The office of Lord Chamberlain was very lucrative and it was also very powerful, but it's very notable that as soon as he became the Lord Chamberlain, all Shakespeare play publication stopped. And it was only Shakespeare play publication. It was not other plays. For example, Jaggard had pirated a few Shakespeare plays. It was Pembroke who put a stop to it immediately. This was in 1619. Pembroke was sort of the Shakespeare police? Yeah. Interestingly, he also contrived it so that his kinsman, Sir Henry Herbert, would become the master of the rebels. The master of the rebels was actually the one who controlled the play publication, but the Lord Chamberlain was above the master of the rebels. He controlled the master of the rebels. So by placing his own kinsman in that position, just before the publication of the play, within four months, the folio came out. It becomes very interesting, possibly suspicious, that really the Earl of Pembroke was more involved than is believed. It's highly likely that he was the one behind it. Ben Johnson, though, must have been heavily involved because he's writing these letters that then go under the name of Hemings and Condal. He writes ambiguously about the portrait. There's possibly this gentleman monster reference that's floated in his own works. So why would he go along with something so fraudulent? That's a good question. But... If we do accept the proposition that Pembroke really was the one who initiated the project and funded the project, then you have to look at Johnson as being the person he used to do that, to accomplish that, because Pembroke was one of Johnson's biggest sponsors, a great admirer as well. And this is for many years before the folio came out. He was patronizing many of Johnson's masks, which, you know, was like a type of play at the court. And Pembroke gave him money every year to buy books, just for buying books alone. Really? Pembroke gave Johnson a book salary? Yes, yes. He also eventually was able to get a stipend for Johnson. It was about 66 pounds a year. So Pembroke really was a major patron of Johnson. He was a major employer. He was his man. And in 1605, Johnson was put in jail after the playing of Eastward Ho. He appealed to Pembroke, Montgomery, his brother, and a few other people, and he was eventually released. Pembroke also got Johnson an honorary degree at one of the major universities. You know, he was greatly beholden to the Earl of Pembroke, and he was going to do his bidding, I would say. Okay, so that really argues for a strong and deep connection and for a significant level of indebtedness. Right. Why the cloak and dagger, though? Why would Pembroke want to put in misleading information about how the first folio was funded? I think he was trying to cover his influence on the folio, and which I think was absolute, was 100%. That phrase, printed at the charges of, was extremely unusual back then. So I think he was just trying to cover his own involvement, but he funded the whole thing. Why create this multi-layered cover story? Many have pointed out that the Earl of Montgomery, who was Pembroke's brother, had married the daughter of the 17th Earl of Oxford, who most people who doubt the Stratford man, they believe was the true Shakespeare, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. So that would certainly account for their interest in preserving the plays. And of course, the Earl of Oxford died in 1604. But I think there was more to it than that. I think it was political. And I do try to explain this in my book. 
So if there's some political reason to have to assign the authorship of the plays of Shakespeare to another person, how do you make sure people go along with a cover story like this? Theaters are notoriously gossipy, and you can influence some people, but you can't pay off everybody. Well, you know, most did go along with it, right? But there are several cases of people who did not go along with this concept. It's very interesting that when the folio came out, no one said a word about it. Suddenly, Macbeth is printed for the first time, and many other plays. No one said anything about it. No one was indicating their interest or joy that we have these plays printed. Very strange. And also, there are several people who believe that the name was a pet name. Some even mocked the folio after it came out. For example, in 1640, in a book of Shakespeare's poems, was an image that resembled the one in the folio by Joshua, and it had verses underneath. And it said, this shadow is renowned Shakespeare's, with a question mark. Soul of the age, the applause, question mark. Delight, question mark. The wonder of the stage. So as early as 1640, you have people doubting the Stratford man as being the true Shakespeare. And there was the anatomy of melancholy. It actually imitated the first folio by having the author's image on the title page portion, although it was much smaller. And it had a poem which was resembled very much the idea of Johnson's poem about the same image, like disregard the image, but look at the book. So there seemed to be some echoes of the folio after it came out. And the interesting part about this is that the writer of this anatomy for melancholy used a pseudonym. And he used his pseudonym underneath the image. So it seems to be like a covert way of referring to the folio as Shakespeare being a pseudonym. I mean, you could read it that way. During his lifetime, contemporaries described Shakespeare in a whole different manner. They implied that the name was a pen name. They implied that the man was a nobleman. They said outright that he worked as a pastime, not as a profession. You have all these things going on. So there are actually these hints going way back that suggest Shakespeare was a pen name. Exactly. And yet when the polio comes around, suddenly everything's different. Everything has changed. And that's why the folio is extremely important. Why is it important to take such a detailed look as you've done today? I mean, it's interesting and it's mysterious that Ben Jonson wrote the letters for Hemings and Condal and that the picture of Shakespeare is a little off and that the funding details seem to have been deliberately obscured. But isn't the first folio important mostly for the plays and not for that perfection and consistency of its introductory materials? The first folio is the reason why that there is a Shakespeare authorship question. It was the very first time that Shakespeare became associated with Stratford-on-Avon and that there is zero evidence that the Stratford man was Shakespeare during his lifetime. And most people are unaware of this. The folio is front and center. It's orthodoxy's best and combined with the Stratford monument only evidence connecting the Stratford man with the great author. But their proof in its preface was a deliberate fraud. It's very obvious that the Earl of Pembroke funded the folio. So he funded the big lie that the Stratford man was a great author. Why he did so is the biggest question of all, and the one that everyone involved in this question should be trying to answer. All this is so interesting, even just in terms of who was involved in creating the first folio, what the relationships were, and what it took to produce this book. Out of all the things you discussed, a few main points really stand out for me. One is that the funding seems particularly complicated. That list of investors from the back page of the folio may not be the full story. Did those men listed even have that kind of money? And then why was one of them seemingly trying to make a final fast buck off of an edition of Romeo and Juliet when there was such concern to sell copies of the folio? And the other is that Ben Johnson has been identified as writing those letters under the names of the actors John Hemmings and Henry Condal, because it's those letters that provide the traditional history of the first folio. 
look up the first folio on good old Wikipedia and what you read about it comes directly from there. So it really shakes up the idea that their content can be taken at face value if they weren't even by the purported writers. And you've shown it's pretty unlikely that Hemings and Condal would have commissioned something that makes them look so foolish, kind of like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the theater scene. These two things, the letters and the financing information, plus all these other curiosities you've discussed, suggest that the origins of the first folio deserve closer scrutiny. Finally, it really bothers me that the Shakespeare family in Stratford had no relationship at all to this book. And it seems a little awkward that the family that was involved in preserving Shakespeare's legacy was the family of Edward de Vere, who many think was the real Shakespeare. At the very least, the book was dedicated to his son-in-law and his brother. And you've shown us that they may actually have sponsored the whole project of the first folio. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Catherine Children, author of Shakespeare Suppressed, The Uncensored Truth About Shakespeare and His Works. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you'd like to support the Shakespeare Underground, please leave a review or rating at iTunes, which will help others find this series. We can also be found on Facebook, Stitcher Radio for our tablets and mobile devices, and other podcast platforms. Please visit our website at theshakespeareunderground.com. We've got further resources, and I've put together some examples of author portraits of the day, so you can take a look and see if you think that there's anything strange going on with Shakespeare's picture. Special thanks to our actors, Mark Waldstein as John Hemmings, Chris Ensweiler as Henry Condal, and David Anthony Lewis as Ben Johnson. Our theme song is A Midsummer Night's Dream by Dokashitiru via ccmixture.org under a Creative Commons license. Thank you again and see you soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.